I'm so glad to be part of Bridge Group because women are just more democratic. When even when they lead, they listen. I silenced myself. What are you saying about me? If I'm not honest and good to myself, I will speak because that is the only way. Is enough. Is enough. This is Women Emerging. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this eighth podcast. The expedition starts at the end of this month, at the end of May. Um, (laughs) Terrifying. The expedition, let me remind you, is to find an approach to leadership that resonates with women so that more women say, if that's leadership, I'm in. I promised you also that by the time we started the expedition, I would have introduced you to all 20 women on the expedition. I I can deliver on on one side of that promise. You will have met them all by the time we start through these podcasts as we interview and talk to so many of them and all of them by the end of May. The bit that I haven't delivered on is that I've failed on the 20. The, The truth is that there are 24 women on the expedition, 24 extraordinary women and and so important that we got we moved it to 24 because it has to include all ages or sectors or faiths or geographies or backgrounds or beliefs not all of course not all but many 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 and 24 just felt in the end like the right number and it's an amazing group thank you all to for your continuing ideas and feedback it's 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 enormously motivating as well as incredibly helpful Thank you for following the expedition, it, whichever platform you're doing it on. And thank you for listening and subscribing to these podcasts. And thank you for giving us your thoughts. In the old days, I think expeditions probably had followers who just sort of bought a map and put pins on pins on them to, to figure out where people were. That's not what following is these days, is it? Following is subscribing, getting in here. And and then also giving us your thoughts and sending me the messages. They're so they're so important. They're, so, they're absolutely crucial. And uh, I've received one fabulous message that I absolutely have to read out to you. It's from Lalima Khan, who's 17 years old and in Karachi in Pakistan. She says, I've been keeping up with the podcasts. And what I really enjoyed is the inclusivity of the different women and the different geographical locations, different cultural backgrounds, different careers, different ages. It really shows that you understand that different parts of the world and different cultures have a need for different changes in their leadership. But she then goes on and says, however, one question playing on my mind is that I haven't yet seen any opinions about women's approach to leadership from the younger perspective, my generation. I feel this is important because we, as young women, are going to grow up and we're going to be those future leaders. So I feel that we should have a say in bringing about this unique approach to leadership in women. Lalima, you're right. Spot on. Can we talk as soon as we possibly can? I have a feeling that you are going to enrich the expedition and I have an idea on how we might do that. This episode is devoted to systems leadership. It's it's not my expertise, not my speciality at all. I learned a lot doing it. I was taught very very clearly that leadership is <laughs> leadership is is you know the expression fish go dead from the head. If you get 
you know, fish do, they go dead from the head. And leadership is the same. If you get, if you get the right leaders, then an organization, a system, a place works and has a hope of succeeding and thriving. If the head isn't right, then there's a problem. And certainly, um, it makes no sense whatsoever that all the heads or most of the heads of most of the fishes are men, which is why we need an approach to leadership that resonates with women so that we all say, I'm in. Sarah took me on in this thinking when I first met her. And she kept on saying to me, the way you express it, Julia, sort of sends a message that the problem is women and the problem is not the women. (laughs) The problem is not us women. The problem is the systems in which we operate and we need systems leadership as well as the human leadership that you talk about. Sarah, you have the totally terrifying and daunting title (laughs) of being the co-founder of the Global Centre for Gender Equality at Stanford University. So, so I think that is a pretty daunting title, probably to you as much as to the rest of us. But so let's go deep first. Go on. Tell me, if you do something like that, you must have discovered while you were doing it some dead-end arguments and some breakthrough arguments. What are the ones where you want to keep away that you know you're going down a dead end as soon as you – you know, you, you you go in the shower that night and you say, why did I let them bait me into going down that dead end? I knew it was a dead end. So what have you learned? Oh, such a good question. I think I'll get at it a little bit differently about when I how I realized how to make the argument, because I think I spent a lot of time and a lot of dead ends. I kind of used to describe myself of being the the, the queen of putting my hand on the stove and learning and then adapting. And I would think adaptation is one of the things that's allowed me to continue to not get frustrated and realize that I can learn from the dead ends. But I think I realized really quickly, a lot of the dead ends was coming at it initially because of where I came from and working with the Gates Foundation early on. Always the argument started with, show me the data and evidence that it matters. (laughs) Show me the data and evidence that by addressing the problem at a systems level or taking an approach um, that's fundamentally coming from an approach of gender equality or women and girls actually leads to better outcomes and other things. And I think when you start from the perspective of always having to make the case, (laughs) I realized very quickly that from starting from that place and that you're always on your heels. So you're always saying, let me show you the evidence. Let me convince you that this matters. And you know, data can be used in lots of ways and tell lots of different stories. So I realized very early that when conversations would start with that, if Sarah, show me the data and evidence that this matters. And there was never a conversation around values or what we were trying to achieve. And then it got into, show me the, the, the six stops that you're gonna make instead of defining what the end line was. I knew I was in a dead end race or I knew it was going to be a race where it was going to be hurting cats and I would have to constantly be like, come to the table. Here's the data that matters to you. And here's how it relates to water and sanitation. And here has how it relates to vaccine delivery. And so I think what I really walked away from that was, was how do you make it the the argument relative, like very relevant for the person that you're talking to? 
and lead with a systems approach of how not only will their outcomes matter for what they are trying to achieve, but show them their their challenge or their opportunity in a bigger ecosystem. What's the most irritating, tedious question you always get asked? And what's your best put down answer to it? I think it's show me the case for why this matters. And I think that, you know, I often say back is like, well, this is like, uh, do you need and do you need the evidence to go to church? There's also just a values aligned about the world that we want to believe in. So to me is, yes, it's important to have the data and evidence, but this is also values for the world that we want to live in. Absolutely. And, and that definitely leads into this issue of systems, doesn't it? Because the expedition is, is so much about, about leadership, but you can be an extraordinary leader if you're in a system that not only doesn't serve you, it actually counter-serves you. You said to me right from the beginning of when we met that systems are the big problem. It's not women that are the problem. It's the systems that are the problem. You believe that deeply, don't you? Yes. Why? I mean, because the world wasn't designed for women, let alone women of color, women from different backgrounds, women with different access to education. And the systems are intentionally built to be exclusive white men. We've been trying to take 99% of the world that has not been designed for and make them fit within this 1%. And that gets into to leadership, right? Leadership is usually has been defined by white male <laughs> leadership models of decision-making and et cetera. And, and so we put women and, and other, you know, gender diverse individuals of different backgrounds into a system that does not value their contributions or the way in which they show up for leadership. So we can, we, we've done a lot of this work of empowering leaders, and then we put them back into a system where there is actual, there is, you know, um, consequences, you know, we've all heard it. She's bossy. She's really aggressive. All of these deeply, deeply gendered words, because the system does not value those things. And so, yes, it's really important to empower and to give people the skills to be able to step into their leadership style. But if we only do that, we're still putting them into a system where they are surviving and not thriving. And so inevitably what you see is high people quitting, giving up the mental health burden for those individuals that are fundamentally, the system wasn't built to support them. Um, and so I, so for me, it's, it's a dual approach. It's understanding, again, the ecosystem and understanding that systems don't change overnight, but we have got to be reimagining, retooling and rethinking um, and adapting the current system while we're building a new way of doing things. When did you last feel that sense of enormous joy because you could see a, sh a system that was shifting? I wish I had more moments of those joy. A system um, that, for me, very personal that that, that very, a lot of joy is. Recently, I'm I'm a I'm a single mom of three um, very spirited young children, and I work full time, so I'm a full time single parent. And the other day, I realized, and the system is not built for 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 single parents, um, and um, we. Um, I saw the system change. We're launching a new organization spinning out of Stanford. 
And we had the opportunity, we have the amazing opportunity to actually build different systems. And so my team had come to me, we were working and they said, here's the potential structure for our HR system, right? Here's the categories, here's what we'll do. And I, and I was thinking about it and I said, no, (laughs) what do you mean? No, we got to set up the system. And then people, and I was like, what if we flipped it on its head? What if we took this system that's inherently built for risk mitigation for companies for, and we said the hell with it. What if we said, let's start with our values. Give me the statements from across our organization of what do we believe, right? So people came back and they believed they they said made statements like we believe in um, we believe in 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 people over production. We believe that capitalism is 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 unchecked. We believe in 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 lived experiences just as valuable as educational attainment. And then we said to the team, we said, we sat there and we said, well, then how do we build our systems to match our beliefs and our deep values? And we came up with things like four-day work week, 32 hours. What does it look like for what it, you know, for working parents? What do we, how do we live these in the systems that we have an opportunity to build? And I got such a joy of flipping the system to say, what does it look like if it comes from core beliefs? And, you know, so things like when, when someone had put the belief, we believe that capitalism unchecked, we said, well, what does that mean in terms of a belief structure? It's like, well, we're going to have a minimum pay with full benefits. We're going to have a max pay. So no executive will ever make X two times or three times more than our starting pay. So it fundamentally gave me so much joy. And I can see I'm getting energized again because it's a system that we in that we passively adopt, I'm saying for the most part, oh, this is how HR works. And this is to just stop for a moment and say, how could we, which is a very simple question of, you know, what do we believe? And then let's build our systems based on our beliefs versus passively adopting systems. Then we have to constantly retrofit, make equitable, (laughs) make just. It's, It's the definition of insanity. Um, it's like, you know, that's where I think the system part really comes into me because I've spent most of my career retrofitting systems that weren't designed for that purpose. And we're playing on the margins and the power of a shift in thinking to say, what does it look like if we actually designed it based on values to be a just system rather than trying to retrofit the world? Those words stick pretty fixedly in my head, trying to retrofit the world. Thank you, Sarah. Moving very fast on to Alia, because I think she brings a lot of this to life with her story. And I'm not going to introduce Alia because the story tells itself. Alia, was hearing your story over the last few years that really brought to life this expression, you know, it's not about women, it's the systems, it's the, it's the, and we need systemic solutions to problems. And um, so if I may, I'd love to go through the chapters of that story you told me about you. If you'll live with that, I'd love to do it. Right. So to me, the story you told me sort of started with, I've got a picture of you as a young girl with straight A's in maths at school. Oh, yeah. And, oh. and, and some A pluses. It was, it was very disappointing if it was only an A. <laughs> and there's such things as A plus plus. 
<laughs> right. No, it was like I, very, very much, um, very focused on math, very focused on uh, overachieving, especially in math and science. Yes. And it got you to MIT. Yes, I, I went to MIT to become an engineer. I, you know, that's I thought um, technology and logic and rigor um, was how we would change the world and um, solve the great the great problems that our world is is facing. But that 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 plan went a bit weird when you decided to go off to Sri Lanka. Yes, um, Sri Lanka turned it upside down. Um, so I, I went to Sri Lanka the summer after my freshman year to do originally just to do tsunami relief work. And, um, I was there out, uh, doing solar lighting systems, water filtration systems, trying to do things that I thought I was going to be doing with my career as an engineer. And while I was there, I met an 11 year old girl who had a six-month-old son from her father. And I, I still remember the day that I, I met her and not knowing how to even hold my face in this moment, how to acknowledge her, everything that she had been through, but also her strength in, in testifying against her father. She had actually taken her own father to court. And I was so inspired by this young woman who was so small and so brave and yet up against a system where she wasn't allowed to go to school. She was taken out of her village and raising a child despite being a child herself. And for me, it was the first time I had encountered something that there wasn't a clear science or or math or technology solution that could just pick up the pieces of this girl's life and put it back together. And it was much more complicated. Um, it was much more human. And it lit something inside of me that was that I had never tapped into before that was much, much deeper, much more vulnerable. And I, I, I couldn't turn away from that. And so I started going back in all of my breaks and eventually um, got some funding and, and took time off from school and moved there and started hiring a team and really digging into what was it that the girls wanted to see for themselves? What, what was the training that they wanted? Who did they want to be long-term? Um, what kind of leadership opportunities do they want? What kind of transformation do they want to see in their communities? How did we give them the skills to really make the changes they wanted to see in the world? And ended up starting a whole organization around that. Um, but it all started with that one, that one 11 year old girl. So you stayed running that organization for what? Quite a few years. What, yeah. what seven, made you leave? How many years? Seven years. I wanted the girls to see themselves in leadership. I wanted. I wanted it to be bigger than me as a founder. I wanted it to really be a Sri Lankan organization that was rooted locally in a way that I would never understand as an American woman, no matter how long I lived there. I wanted the girls to know that they could do this. You know, they often would look at me and and tell me things about 
how I was able to start this because I was American or because I was white. And I would tell them, no, like I was 19 and, and I came here and I want to do this and you can do this too. And, but I wanted them to see, I wanted them to have a role model that they could really relate to, to see the potential in themselves. And that required letting go, which, which was in many ways heartbreaking, but I thought to enact the change that I wanted and, and for the girls to see the full possibility, that was really important. And so that caused you to come back to the US and a very extraordinary move, which was to go and work for a global consulting firm. Yes. A well-known global (laughs) consulting firm. Yeah. How did that decision happen? And so for me, it was about getting people to take me seriously. And, um, And you learned a lot. And I learned a ton. It was like, how do I basically, it was like, I want to get my MBA, but get paid for it. And I also don't want to cut my hair, which people are telling me as a girl to be taken seriously, I had to cut my hair. And I was like, no, there's got to be a better way. And (laughs) so I was like, let's try this. So I was there for two and a half years, but a year of that, I was, um, it's called a secondment. I was kind of gifted, like loaned to this businesswoman to support her and her foundation. So I was, I was consulting for about a year and a half. And then a year of that was, was working with uh, a woman at her foundation, really on issues around women's leadership. What did you learn then? Um, What I found was that a lot of the academic research that's out there and a lot of the programming that is out there for how women can lead focuses deeply on individual change, like what can women do to better fit into a world designed by men? How can we change? How can we fit in? How can we behave differently? How can we take up more space? How can we feel more confident, negotiate better, et cetera? And a lot of the conversation around women's leadership is really anchored at what I would call kind of the top of the pyramid, really thinking about within corporate structures, how do we get more women to the top? And like, how do we get more women at least into sort of middle management? And for me, my interest had always been in the ways that women lead very organically in all spheres of life. Like the women who've been totally cast out, the the young women who I worked with in Sri Lanka, who literally all of society has turned their back on And they're willing to stand up in front of their whole village in public court at age 11 with everybody there saying, this is wrong and I don't want my sisters to go through it. That is tremendous leadership. So we move on from that because that that didn't last very for a long time. But what was calling you was the Bay Area of California. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this whole time when I was... um, doing my consulting chapter and and working at this foundation, I was in the Bay Area. And what I saw was there was a group of mostly young women, some young men who were being trafficked for sex right right here in the United States. The Bay Area is a a large hub of sex trafficking. And at the time, some of this legislation has changed, but at the time we were incarcerating children for prostitution. And I had for years with my work in Sri Lanka, been talking about the ways in which the girls I'd worked with there 
had to leave society for their protection. Like they would, they would move into these shelters. They, you know, the whole village was upset with them. And as I was looking around at what was happening here, I was starting to see this parallel where, where kids who were being repeatedly raped every night, instead of being offered services and healing and support, which by the way, has started to change here in California. This was a little while ago. Were being locked up and penalized for the trauma that they had been through. And I started to think, God, you know, we can't, like, we're going to constantly be pulling people out of the water unless we start to really look at both the systems that have pushed them in, but also the way that our systems respond to this. Because clearly, penalizing people after they've already been through so much trauma is only causing more trauma. I mean, it's systemic violence. Like what kind of world are we building for our children when we're locking them up? And this is right in the place that I used to fundraise for children in Sri Lanka. And they were outraged that we were locking children up in Sri Lanka, but we're locking them up right here. And so I left my job and spent a year just learning, just walking around and, and talking to youth on the street, talking to providers. And what I heard again and again and again was not that we needed more direct services. We actually, I mapped it all out. We had at the time, and I'm sure it's changed since then, but at the time we had 68 different touch points with these kids, but that there were these failure points where kids would, and, and, and the, and kids who we talked to would describe them where systems had failed them despite them sending up flags. So for example, maybe they're in foster care and they weren't being fed and they weren't being taken care of. And they were telling their social worker and saying that there was this problem and nobody listened. And so they ran away because they couldn't eat. They didn't have food. And then the only way for them to survive was by selling their body. And then at some point an exploiter picked them up and started utilizing them. And why aren't we rewinding and saying, well, like, how do we have a system in place that doesn't let our children get fed, right? So I can, a I can hear, option I, for them to run away. <laughs> I can hear the MIT brain going here. So the MIT brain and the management consulting brain was beginning to really get going around systems thinking. Oh yeah, at this age, big time. I mean, you should see my wall. It was like. I have this huge bubble chart of how everything's connected to everything. We had multiple landscape maps and it, it became this, it couldn't even be a two dimensional structure. It needed to really be a three dimensional structure. And I started to think about how I believe for some of our most complex problems, we're never going to program our way out of them. Like that's not good enough. Like programs are deeply needed, but it's never going to be A plus B equals C, which is, I know what I loved about math, right? But it, every, we're, we live in ecosystems. And so you have to think about how all of these different forces are connected and which ones do you have leverage and power over and which ones do you not? And which ones do you think you could maybe shift a little bit and which ones are just too out of our controls? So you spend the next few years doing that? And the next six years doing that. So another six years doing that doing that very successfully. Alia's commitment is extraordinary and 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 it totally illustrates that systems leadership is a long, hard, committed journey. When I asked her what 
the next chapter of the journey would be she 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 looked very quietly at me and smiled and Alia has these absolutely huge eyes that have an enormous impact on you and um as she smiled and kept quiet it left me speculating and then moving on to melissa melissa another extraordinary woman based in singapore one of the driving forces of of singapore the city of singapore one of the driving forces for change in singapore she used an expression to me which which to me caught the sort of sweet spot that we're on our way to finding that that somehow brings my very human approach to leadership together with the the systems approach that both Sarah and Alia have been talking about but uh, I I leave it to her to 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 tell you the expression the quality of the intervention on the system or in the system is directly correlated to the quality of the inner life of the intervener. And essentially that means that who you are, who you are in the system affects how you act and impact the wider system. Um, and that just sounds like a really, maybe it sounds like an obvious idea, maybe it sounds like a simple idea, but I think it's just endlessly um, complex. And I think yeah, it's, it's, it's it's like all it's like all the simplest. It's unbelievably complex, right? You could just meditate on it for 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 years. I mean, <laughs> for your life, right? Um, and I and I think you know you you talked about it as a sort of um, sweet spot. Actually, you know, Otto Schwarber talks about it as a blind spot, and actually that's true because so many of us are just. Um, active, we want to make things happen, we, you know, have ideas, we have goals, we're trying to move things. And then accidentally, it can become about you. You know, accidentally, it can become about you. Um, and, and actually, that's the blind spot. When you don't realize how you're acting on a system, how you're acting in the system. And in a sense, you stopped hearing the multiplicity of voices that are out there in the system, because there are so many and they're so diverse. And with all the echo chambers that we sort of do exist in, it's so hard to hear all the different voices out there. But, but with all the different voices out there, then, and if we're only hearing our own voice, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, that's, where, that's, where that, that's where that blind spot um, exists. How do you make that sort of, um, I'm going to carry on talking about it as a sweet spot because we yeah. should determine to get to it. How do you get, how do you get that sort of um, yin-yang? How do you get that systems thinking and the human, let's say, thinking to sort of combine in a way so that you do get a sweet spot? As we take action, uh, having an, a sort of an, an inner stillness or an inner constancy um, about who we are, about why we do what we do, uh, about um, about how we define our tribe, perhaps even too. And I and I think that that um, 
I mean, if you if you ask me, what is it that I think we need to be effective in those in those uh, interventions? I think we need a clear sense of our own identity and a very grounded sense of our own identity. I think there's a sense of um, belonging, like this this sense of why are you here? Because you're acting in a system, but you are also part of the system. It's a big part of that. But I think there's identity. I think there's belonging, and I think there's purpose. Um, I think as as a as a leader in and of the system is really just having a purpose that that is a that is a grounding mobilizing purpose that is about something bigger than 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 ourselves, right? And being able to um, express, I think, the link between why this matters to me and then why this matters to us, <laughs> um, and then having it be about us. Um, the, the the why it matters to me part is 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 sharing with people why what's at stake for you. You know, that this isn't just like a little hobby horse or, or soapbox, you know, that you happen to be on, but there's something that's meaningful for you. And, and I think if you think about a lot of women, women leaders in a lot of ways, they, 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 they come to a public issue uh, because of a private challenge. Or you know whether it's the, the mothers against drunk driving or, or whether it's, um, you know, uh, even, even issues around uh, harassment and so forth. I mean, those, those are because we have personal experiences that says I cannot let my private pain just end there. I, I need to make it a collective um, dream. It, it, stopping it, ending it, creating a different future for it actually is the point. Right, so it's it's connecting that personal to the to the to the to the broader public and 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 political, I suppose, on on some level too. Um, that's that is that is so key. Hmm. So it's that's really interesting. So it's it's got to have me, but it's got to have us, mm. and then it has to be about us, not yeah. me. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The me shows what your stake is in this, and. And, um, you know, and I think that's the important part here, too, I think, is being able to tell our stories and, you know, without shame or fear, uh, even if they do sound a bit strange and weird, because actually that's what humanizes, humanizes us, you know, it, it's, it's what humanizes the issues. Um, and it makes, and it invites people to come with us, you know, rather than rely on the superhero or the super super human being or whatever it is that's going to save us all which i think is not the way that uh, <laughs> is not the way that that systems get better and i and i and i feel like that more typically i mean of course it's not exclusive but typically you know i mean women feel women feel better doing it together too value too if you have a if you had a pin board on your wall or on your screen would it be a pinboard with people or would it be a pinboard of systems? You know, people make up the system, right? Um, so it's both. And I guess in that sense, it would be a pinboard of um, dots and lines connecting dots. Um, it's, uh, it's networks, it's, it's webs, it's flows. Um, so it's, it's not static, it's, it's definitely dynamic. And how do you spot the the bits that don't work. <laughs> uh, I guess they're very disconnected um, from everything else. I'm thinking, you know, I, I developed a bit of a system, which is that you, my pin board, it, it looks like a galaxy. Live with right. me. This, this sounds crazy. 
but it it has the suns, the moons, the stars, the Milky Ways, the black holes, the lot. You know, the suns, the places, the 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 sources of power that light and guide and give energy and warmth to people. Mm. The the moons, the sources of power that appear to be great, but actually the truth is they're waning. The shooting stars, the people who are, they appear to be on their way somewhere, but actually they will burn out quite soon. The Milky Ways, the ones where everybody is spending hours, you know, connecting each other. And actually it's all about building networks, but nothing actually ever happens. Mm. And and then and then the black holes, the sources of power that when you go into them, you sort of disappear. You know, <laughs> they they sort of you disappear into a puff of spoke, and you can't get back out of them. And it's it's interesting because it's both systems thinking, I suspect, and human thinking. Because you know, yes. there have been moments when I've thought of myself and hoped that I was being a son and realized that I wasn't, and I was perhaps even being a black hole. And then moments when I have charged behind and supported a shooting star and then been left standing thinking, what happened here? But it's, it's also the ability to judge a system and to judge where to intervene. You must have learned that in Singapore. You know, I, I, um, you know, I, love, I love your galaxy uh, idea. <laughs> the analogy I used to t- t- tell, tell the team too is, you know, just don't push a rock up a hill. You know, you wait for the conditions, you know, um, such that there is a rock that is on top of the hill, you know, and you apply a little bit of pressure, you know, but there's largely just gravity that's going to roll that rock down the hill. Um, and And you want to look at intervening in a system in a way that seeks to um, acknowledge the reality, the, their reality, the, the reality of the, the other players in the system, you know, actually too, and, and not force it so much as, as invite it, as create conditions for it. Um, and I think that's what enables sort of sustainable, uh, you know, change in, a, change in a system. Thank you, Sarah, Alia, and Melissa. This has been a an incredibly useful podcast for me to make, at the very least. I've learned a lot. As um, as we leave it, I, I think I, I want to come back to my galaxy. You know, there was one I missed out, the suns, the moons, the shooting stars, the black holes, the Milky Ways. Then there's just simply the star. And in any system, I always try to find the stars. They're not at the top and they're not at the bottom, they're somewhere in the middle. And they are quietly people who simply make things happen. And if you really want to have an impact on a system or or an issue, you, you need to find the stars. They're people who are deeply connected within the system and they're they're deeply trusted because because I think I think Melissa's right. I think they're trusted because they they belong to the system. They have purpose within the system. They've established legitimacy within the system, and they are connected to other people because other people, on the whole, 
want to help them to achieve the things that they achieve. For me, the really important thing, of course, is to find the suns. But um, to find the stars too, they make things happen. In two weeks' time, my second grandson is due. I'm thinking a lot about um, how we bring up our sons and our grandsons in this new world. And I'm hoping that one day they'll say too, if that's leadership, I'm in. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Your voice and perspectives are crucial to the success of the expedition, and we would love you to become a partner to Women Emerging. You can do this by subscribing to this podcast and joining the Women Emerging group on LinkedIn.